0: uh cockroaches in the ratchet. uh hand me downs with the patches mama put a little money in the matches Tell me how to make a silver spoon out of plastic you can either sink swim or be the captain get the last word i'ma get the last laugh that-
1: hey everybody welcome to killer cereals i'm tony jones ryan parker we're a couple uh white guys very with, white guys, very very white guys, with PhDs in theology. We watch TV and talk about it, and we are uh, talking about Luke Cage, a TV series uh, on streaming on Netflix that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, and uh, it
2: set it, firmly in the Marvel universe.
1: Oh my goodness, is it ever! And we're starting yeah, to more, see a more and more every episode. That. That's right. We're talking about episode seven and eight. Episode seven is called "Manifest." Episode eight is called "Blowing Up the Spot." I have one thing I would say is that in most TV shows, I can usually figure out what the what the title has to do with the content of the episode. I am struggling to find that out in are Luke you,
2: Cage. Are yeah. you not? You're not uh, cool enough to do that. Well, there, there's so
1: many things about Luke Cage that remind me that I'm not cool enough yeah. when
2: I watch this show.
1: I mean, it's well, crazy. Um, yeah. Except I do wear a lot of Carhartt, which is what Luke Cage wears. Yeah, so. I saw
2: somebody walking around L.A. the other day that had on um, what looked to be a production gift. You know, when you're on these, you see people all the time that clearly worked on these shows because they have cool swag. Uh huh. And this guy was rocking a Carhartt zip up with Luke Cage on the back.
1: Oh, there you go.
2: I almost beat him down to take it. <laughs>
1: I wear a lot of Carhartt, but I was wearing Carhartt way before it was hipster.
2: Way before Luke Cage made it cool.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, listen, uh,
2: we we need to talk about, let's do our quick recap of two episodes because we have a special guest that we want to get to and bring into the conversation.
1: Yeah. Episode seven was, it's interesting, you know, as you and I have talked about, they have a lot of cliffhangers and, you know, we got to the end of uh, episode six and it was almost like the end of a season. And then you get to episode seven, you're like, "Holy crap!" You texted me right after you watched it and said you did not see that coming, because uh, Cottonmouth gets killed by Mariah. I mean, that's the that's that that's the thing. That's, that's the biggest shocker. Oh my gosh, she she absolutely flips out because her political career is over she's being told she has to step down off of the uh you know harlem city council and she goes over to uh the nightclub that they co-own and, and she they... and he freaks out on cottonmouth Cotton. and push, pushes him out of his window in his second story office and he lands you know right in front there's a lot of symbolism he lands right in front of the stage uh where he's where we've seen so many just like African American great musical yeah. superstars playing in this series so far, and he lands there, and then he's still alive. And then she basically takes a mic stand and um, beats him to death.
2: And, yeah, and I think it's what's great about that would have been shocking enough, but what's so pointed about it in episode seven is that we see all these flashbacks to their uh, childhood or to their teenage years, yeah, uh, where she. And Cottonmouth lived with Mama Mabel and Uncle Pete, who we meet for the first time. And we see that he had a promising career as a musician, but got drawn into this kind of underworld, this underbelly of of crime, although stressing not drugs, right? And, yeah, and what yeah. they did. And Cottonmouth starts to draw comparisons between Mariah and Mama Mabel, and Mariah just cannot stand it and goes ballistic.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, here's what's interesting. you talk about Uncle Pete and this is a, I, f- I found it interesting in the way they um, shot this or s- directed this episode that it was it was done almost subtly and it's done very quickly, but it's, it seems to be the thing that is what really makes Mariah snap. And that is that she was clearly raped by Uncle Pete because before before Cottonmouth is about to execute him, because his aunt is making him do it out in the, in the yep. um, out in the, in the alley. Backyard. Yep. You know, he says he says to young Mariah, you always laughed, you know, you, I thought you were playing along with this. Like yeah, basically he, 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 was, he was sexually assaulting her and then and then Mariah says back to the present day when they're upstairs and they're they're about to get into their fight. It's not really a fight. It's just she beats the crap out of him, and pushes him out of a window, but he he says to Mariah, I saw you flirt with Uncle Pete. You you know, you, you basically
2: walking around half naked.
1: Walking around like you deserve to be sexually assaulted by yeah. Uncle Pete. She's and not that's, standing for that. So this is just so interesting because the show takes up so many issues that are so poignant and, in the present day. But that's right. here's here's one you haven't really seen, and that's sexual assault. And it but it's dealt with I mean, I could see a lot of viewers actually missing that because yeah. it was done very quickly and and almost subtly. But I thought it was powerful because it seems like that's the thing. Sure. Like Mariah can put up with just about anything, but when she's basically she, told you, you're responsible for your own sexual assault, she snaps. Which no woman should be, obviously.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, so you have that going on. And, and then finally you have... In episode seven, Luke finally gets shot by who we learn in episode eight is Diamondback with the Judas bullet that was referred to in episode I believe it was five or six, yeah. and and Luke Cage is in some real uh, hot water because this bullet has penetrated his skin, has exploded, and the shrapnel is now making its way through his body, which is kind of reminiscent of Iron Man in the Marvel universe. So we've had an allusion to Iron Man, we've had direct references in these two episodes to Captain America. And Daredevil. And yeah. so one wonders, are we going to get Iron Man here to save the day to get the uh, the shrapnel out? Uh, we see in episode 8, two with Diamondback, we realize, is actually Luke Cage's brother. And Diamondback is a scripture-quoting assassin. Well, we um, yeah.
1: So Diamondback says, so his dad was obviously a Baptist minister, which he says, but he was also the high school football coach. And it seems like Luke thinks that he was kind of adopted into Diamondback's family, and because he says we were like you were like a brother to me, and Diamondback's response is no, we were brothers. So there's something about Luke's own past that he doesn't really get. And meanwhile, all the while this bullet's burrowing itself. It's funny because it gets inside of it gets it drills under his skin, then it explodes. And And then then, they can't get to it. And then they can't, because his skin is impenetrable, so they can't get back to it. So, and then right at the end of episode eight, when yet another cliffhanger, he gets shot for a second time and falls into a garbage truck. And he really looks like he's dying. I mean, his his skin is going gray and he does not look good.
2: So this is where we find ourselves, and we reminding everybody and our guest <laughs> that we have not watched beyond Episode 8, <laughs> so we are hanging on. And speaking of guests, I, I'm, I'm excited to welcome to the Killer Series podcast, Cutter Calloway, who is uh, the Assistant Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. And uh, it's great to have him on because he's got a book that's coming out very soon, Uh, entitled Watching TV Religiously, Television and Theology and Dialogue, which he has co-authored with Dean Batali, who is a screenwriter, most notably on a show many of you might remember called That 70s Show. And so, Cutter, welcome. We're glad to have you. Hey, thanks, guys, for having me. You've been patiently listening to us unpack these couple of Uh episodes. And uh, so, you know, what we want to do for the next few minutes is talk about these two episodes and maybe... We can go back some and and get some of your take on the show so far.
0: Um, yeah. Well. So I, what's you know, your? Are, you're watching Blue Cage, or you've watched I, all of it? So I what, so I have to confess I binged it. So. Yeah. so are gonna, you a fan? I, I am. I'm going to have to do my best not to say <laughs> certain things uh, <laughs> specifically about what you were just last talking about. So. Um,
1: <laughs> oh, thanks a lot, buddy. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. So well,
1: I, uh, I I am guessing that. Luke Cage survives, but uh, you know, no spoiler alerts. (laughs) I guess he survives the bullets somehow miraculously those, the shrapnel gets pulled out of his skin.
2: And Tony, Uh, I I think we could also just run through a couple of things that we've noticed. And that we seem to come back to each episode, each episode of the podcast cutter. I think this might be something to kind of show you what we've been talking about, which is we've, we've been amazed and, and thrilled by just how black the show is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we are are fascinated, taken with the African American history and culture that has inf- underpinned the narrative in many ways. We've talked about ways in which Luke Cage is kind of functioning as a as a Christ figure, um, or at least the show is begging that question yeah. and complicating that question. And then, obviously, we, as you've seen, we unpacked the, the, each episode kind of from a narrative perspective. But those are some, of, and we're talking about the ways in which the show as part of this larger Marvel universe, uh, which is this kind of cosmic myth, but we're also talking about how it captures day-to-day concerns for contemporary audiences without feeling too preachy. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I do want to say something. Just it, This isn't even... We don't need to belabor this or whatever, but I just want to tell you about a reaction that I had, especially... So in episode eight, after the murder of, of Cottonmouth, then there's kind of, you know... There's kind of the aftermath of the murder and like who did it and the cops are involved and Mariah is trying to figure it out. Well, I would just say this. When we've got Misty, there are like two or three scenes where we've got Misty Knight, Mariah, and then uh, Misty's new boss, the inspector Priscilla uh, Ridley, who has a history with Misty and is now kind of investigating her for the death of her partner and also watching her, you know, in her kind of tortured relationship with Luke Cage. I, but I just want to say this, as a viewer, there were two or three scenes where it's the only people on screen are three African-American actresses. Yep. And it, it occurred to me, I mean, it, it took me back, a uh, back because... It's so rare that I've seen that. Like, I thought, when have I ever seen in television three African-American women alone on screen and the only thing I could think of was Orange is the New Black, which it's not as shocking in Orange is the New Black because you've got these basically gangs of races, you know? And so it's just like, oh, now now it's going to be like the Latina subplot and now it's going to be the African-American subplot. Now it's... Now it's the Piper and the and the white subplot, but here it's a little more like these are three very strong characters, well-written characters, strong actors on screen together. And I just just throw it out to the group there that how rare that is in in our culture.
0: But it's not as rare. But they, I mean, it's pretty interesting because the some of the initial <laughs> white people feedback, um, just viewer reviews and stuff were complaining about yeah. that same thing. You know, like it's, it's where are all the white people? You know what, this is misrepresentation. you know, blah, 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 yeah. um, which is scandalous and shocking and sad and tragic all in its own right. But I agree, it's not just, the other thing is it's not just that they're there, but they're, they're textured and rich and they, yeah. they have an arc. Um, and so I, we won't say much, I, I won't say what the arc is after episode eight, but um, they all develop, they all are complex. And they're in positions of leadership, so you have the, the chief of police, the head investigator of the project, the mayor no she's the uh, city councilwoman the yeah city, city, city councilwoman um, yeah. but then you also have the the night nurse right um, who's not yeah. black but still a woman That's of color yeah. and the yes okay this okay this is not ahead of time um, <laughs> the uh, the the primary uh, woman that they put on the hook for falsely accusing Luke Cage so all of them are all that there is no plot other than that. I mean, so You're like, right. it, you know, it's, it's not just that they're represented. It's that they're carrying the whole thing forward, which I just read a thing. I don't know if you guys uh, have saw the, or have talked about on the podcast, the, um, the good place, you know, that Oh, I'm watching uh, that. That's, yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, it's supposedly this afterlife and, and I saw, or I heard a radio interview with the creator. Um, and he said, it was really important for me to get accurate representation of humanity, right? Um, so that, you know, in the, in ostensibly heaven, there weren't a bunch of one race or ethnicity or gender or whatever, because, you know, it's, it's a non-denominational heaven. Yeah. And so he said, you know, so that means that whatever it was, five or six out of every 10 people need to be uh, eight of Asian descent and specifically, you know, four need to be Chinese, you know, so forth and so on. Well, that's all fine and well, but when I watched that show, all I see is uh, a white actress carrying the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, everybody else just blurs into the background, so it's like they or serves
2: per- her narrative.
0: Yeah, and and so yeah. and I haven't watched all, all, everything yet, but that's where this is so. This is why it's not just the faces that are on the screen, but it's it's like it's confronting our sensibilities because we're we're not used to that. It, well, it really even is. even
1: even to go back to Orange is the New Black, you know when when Genji Cohen. When the show first popped on on Netflix and became very popular, people pressed her on that and she's like, well, I I had to write a story about a skinny blonde to be able to tell the stories of black women and yeah. w- other women of color on TV. But I think in Luke Cage, it shows you don't. And it's funny, even in Orange is the New Black, the, the African-American women in there oftentimes fall into um, – Cultural stereotypes, oh yeah, in the in the way they talk and the way they treat each other and things like that. It these three women that I'm talking about in these three scenes, and you're right, there are other uh, women of color also who are very strong in this series of Luke Cage. are they don't, they are not stereotypical mm-hmm. in any way, and I I find that fascinating. I I I want to I want to turn a little bit to something that might be a little more theological in nature, and I'd like to get both you guys. Uh, Both of your reactions to this, but it's something that occurred to me, and I'm—I've confessed many times on this podcast. I'm not a comic book nerd, so it's just—it's I'm you know I don't come in with a whole bunch of comic book background or opinions or anything like that. But it does seem to me that this is something that's that's unique about Luke Cage in the comic book universe, maybe in the Marvel universe. He is in no way undercover, and by that I mean. He doesn't have a um, he doesn't have a Clark Kent, you know, everyday persona. He doesn't wear a mask, he doesn't wear an outfit. He doesn't hide in the shadows. He walks tall through Harlem. Everybody knows who he is. It's no secret who he is. Everybody knows what he's capable of, what his superpowers are. And I just wonder how this, so many comics. Play on the messianic secret. Uh-huh. Somebody finds out who Batman is and he's like, you cannot tell anybody, yeah. you know, it, or or same with Superman or, or, or so many other superheroes, not Luke Cage. Luke Cage is not in the sh- He doesn't want to be famous, but he also doesn't hide his identity. And there's even a joke to, uh, before he gets shot where he's like, hey, maybe I get a mask and a cape, you know, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And she says, no, you got to walk tall in this, in this city. So I don't know what you guys make of that relative to o- other kind of comic book
0: messianic superheroes. Yeah. I, Ryan, you want to go? Or you want me to take that? Well, yeah. I, it's a, I think it's really an important question. And it, I guess the, the, the next one would be, you know, why, what, what's the sort of payoff of that? Is it trying to subvert sort of the, the, the archetype or is it playing off of it? Or is, I mean, I, so, what I see in it is you have the reason that others want to hide their identity generally speaking is because well two reasons maybe there's more one they they're sort of entering the seedy underbelly of the world where m- morals are a little bit more cloudy and they have to sort of press the line of what's what's good um you know or what's what's right for what they see as as good you know ends justify the means and so to protect their daily life, um, so let's say Daredevil, to connect it directly, um, he's hiding up his other activity. So it, it raises questions about uh, the moral sort of compass of their alter ego. Um, but it also is to protect, supposedly, like the innocents, right? The, the people they love, um, the people that uh, right. would potentially. And that strikes me as in Luke Cage, w- what we do not have are any innocents. Everybody, everybody is implicated in this this thing, and and Luke as well. So, what what would you hide? You know, like what would you disguise? You're the six foot six, you know, brown guy with that can't you know be shot by bullets, which is sort of like the great equalizer is you can you can be shot and killed by police, um, and so I wonder if that's part of it that that he's a part of a, a world that is so fully implicated in in the the brokenness of it that there's no sense or need for hiding one's identity but that that's sort of off the cuff well yeah and also
2: it seems like i I think that's an interesting point about everyone being kind of complicit in the brokenness of the world but there's also this reality maybe that luke cage isn't doing anything wrong Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he has nothing to hide Mm -hmm, yeah so he can walk tall um and be be who he is I mean I think that's also a question too like episode 7 seems to start off with if it's kind of the halfway point of the series and we thought Cottonmouth was arrested but he's out but now he's dead there's this notion of justice there's a conversation that Luke Cage has with it's Rosario Dawson's character about justice and like how you have to get it yourself and she's saying she's advocating for him to go out and take it and he seems to be hesitant to do that yeah and so I'm wondering if it's drawing these lines about what is justice and what isn't. And yeah. that's something that's kind of a common superhero. Theme.
0: Well, isn't that always the trope? I mean, like, I, I'm often thinking of like other sort of quintessentially American myths that are more like the Western, where you have a disguised outsider who comes in and, and sort of meets out justice. That's It's really an abstracted form of justice in, inserted into a community, which is another reason why you'd want to hide who you are, um, so it's sort of like justice is blind, sort of a thing, but yeah. but justice isn't blind. Uh, it's it's yeah. always contextual. It's you know to to get theological on it. That's that's would be one of the sort of undeconstructables of of justice is something that invites or calls us. We never really realize it. Um, it's always an imperfect form of it because it, it requires us to to express it in these sort of material ways. But there's this invitation that we're all being called toward. That maybe Luke Cage is is doing that another uh, superhero can't. And that's why it's both maybe more of a Christ figure than, than say, uh, a Superman or a Daredevil or whatnot, who kind of interact with tangible reality as if from like a pristine position that they kind of enter and exit at will. Um, But of course, that even is less Christ figure and more just a, a notion of privilege. Um, so so we put, we're, in a real way,
2: it can be tempting to put Luke Cage up on a pedestal. Yeah. But in episode seven, before he dies, Cottonmouth calls a meeting with Luke and they talk. And he Cottonmouth relays to Luke that he knows his past. Yeah. That he's actually Carl Lucas and was spent time in Seagate. And that if he pushes any further, he'll make sure that he goes back. What do you say? I'll charter the ship myself and send you back to Seagate. And Luke is about to run away. Like yep. he wants to run away and not expose that, but but Cottonmouth says to him, "You ain't no better than me. Mm-hmm. You're not Harlem's Captain America." And he's right. There's something about their backstories and their identity that they're not far removed from each other. Mm-hmm. Unlike Captain America and the Red Skull, or you pick pick a hero and the villain, because they both ha- they're both victims mm-hmm. and they're both violators. In a way that I don't think we see in a lot of the shows in the Marvel Universe. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think that's good. Did, have you guys talked about the Gangstar lyrics for all the titles of the episodes? No. Oh well, Tony, no, is,
1: that, is that what I'm missing, Cutter? Yeah. Help so
0: so uh, Gangstar is uh, a, a group that um, each of the episodes is uh, carries a title that's one of their songs, and so uh, I'm looking right now at so the title of episode seven is Manifest, right? So the lyrics to Manifest by Gangstar, um, here's here's kind of a line. Let's see here. I'm, not, I'm just going to read this. I'm not going to wrap it. I'm not going to wrap it. I, I too am. I'm the Tony third white, will, white guy here. So Tony Tony will beatbox <laughs> and you can wrap it. <laughs> okay. Um, right. It's, it's, I convey that what I say will awaken you today after jocking while I'm talking. But anyway, that you put it, I give you lyrics to live. Righteousness rules, so I forgive you this time. For you are being very ignorant. That's insignificant. I guess you figured and hoped to be dope as me. I D you flee, because the rest is too much for you. I'm your professor. I got the touch to do more than the rest who fess and can't compete. I'm elite. I'll defeat, delete, mistreat, make mincemeat of other fools. Cause I'm the brother who'll snatch up the funds and make lonely ones. I'm in it really because I'm clearly obsessed. And I and I these are the words that I manifest. I manifest. So the whole the whole song is so that's Cottonmouth. Um, yeah. So that that whole thing is about. How, how you know we're we're all bound up in this as sort of brothers of of this context of Harlem, and um, I'm actually as 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 cottonmouth I'm trying to exert righteousness and an order and and sort of like a, a, a an ordered existence for me and my family and others. I'm just doing it through the the resources that were handed to me, and the same thing for Luke Cage, and that's not a one's bad and one's good. It's simply, this is how you get by. Yeah. And, and, and and one looks a little bit different than the other. Which is a reflection of,
2: it It seems to be a reflection of something that we talked about quite extensively last week. I believe it was episode five or six with the church service, the memorial service, yeah. the pops. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of bringing those, one may not necessarily be markedly worse than the other, they're just different.
0: The end of... Blowing, uh, blowing up the spot. That's uh, yeah. episode eight. The recurring line. I won't quote it in its entirety, but I'm about to blow the f up. Is the, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. the ongoing lyric. So that whole notion of, it's also getting. He's shot, and it's like inside him, wanting to explode. Is a, a fitting way to think about that. I've got a, I've got a
2: couple of questions, or one, one other question about these two episodes. I should say, uh, episode eight in particular maybe get your guys feedback on what do you what do you guys make of of the scriptural references in episode eight that come from diamondback you know you could have picked anything as a writer and yet they they seem to settle on these two
1: yeah are you saying what of of the of the passages they pick or of just of uh putting bible quotes like i would say of the well both
2: but i would say of the passages that they that they pick. Well, you better remind the listener what they are. Well, the first one's 1 Peter 5 8. Tony, you don't have that memorized?
1: <laughs> Dude, I mean, I probably did when I was in vacation Bible school. Oh.
0: You went to a good vacation Bible school.
2: Well, 1 Peter 5 8 is be alert and of sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour.
1: Yeah, it seems to me that, I mean, I thought about this and I thought about the, the Diamondback is using the Bible in a different way than it's been used previously in the series. And previously in the series, it was like, doesn't Jesus say to turn the other cheek? Well, I'm not basically, I'm not Jesus. You know, this, he, Diamondback is not using the, the regularly quoted Jesus, y sermon on the Mounty type things. He's going straight for the apocalyptic. And,
2: well, his other verse too, uh, you know, could be there are many instances, but you know, just quickly is Matthew ten thirty four. Do not suppose that I come to bring peace. But I did not sword. come to bring peace, but a sword. So yes, I, I remember
1: on. that because that's right walking into that incredible the, the theater. theater. Yeah, I mean yeah. that theater is just c- completely breathtaking. When it's a cathedral. When yes, exactly. When Luke walks in there, it's almost heavenly. But then you've got this like angel of death type character who's. Uh, coming after him with these Judas bullets. I mean, <laughs> the, the, it, the, the theological uh, symbolism is not far beneath the surface in this show. And I think that, you know, Diamondback's use of these two apocalyptic type passages is kind of setting him up to be this apocalyptic type bring, figure, bringer of death type figure.
2: Cutter, you spent a lot of time with Dean Batali, who spent a lot of time in writer's rooms and around writers and has written himself. Tony and I have talked about the ways in which this show forces viewers to reckon with religion and theology if they're listening and paying attention.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: Do you think there's arguments about that? Do you think there's like, do you think the writer sat around like, hey, we're going to use first Peter, we're going to use Matthew 10, uh, 34. These are, these
0: are clearly people who've spent some time with these texts. Yeah. I think you can answer it a few different ways. I, I like to speak for Dean. Um, and <laughs> and in fact, this, this episode, and then we have a radio interview tomorrow, and he can't be on it. And so he said, well, I guess you get to speak for me again. And Wearing um, two hats. That's right. So uh, he's actually up in uh, Vancouver, uh, show running another show right now. So um, that's where he is at. Um, oh, good you, for him. You know, I, I think it actually is is really case by case. But... From, from all the stories I've heard Dean tell, it often is less thoughtful than we might want it to be, uh, if if that's being fair. That's not always the case, but sometimes, um, you know, that, that'll be usually the case in a, in a show where it's most obviously not central to what's going on. In this case, we'd have to, of course, talk to the people in the room um, as to what yeah. their, that sort of negotiation was. Who was pressing the issue? What, how they thought or imagined it would come across to an audience. One thought that I always have is part of why it works or why it's so knowledgeable is that the sort of black experience in America, as far as I'm aware of it, is a profoundly Protestant Christian sort of experience. Um, sure. Not not necessarily in any sort of metaphysical commitment sort of way, but at least um, the form is there. That that this there there is a sort of use of of christian resources and and symbols that's just a part of what it means to be um, a black person in america there's a uh, interesting book by a guy named anthony penn uh down at rice i think Uh, he wrote a book called the end of god talk and he's developing a an african-american humanistic theology um which is essentially he he's an atheist now a former methodist pastor now an an outspoken uh black atheist um, with a <laughs> with a PhD in theology, and and his whole point in this book is that if you think it's hard to be an atheist in the modern world, where you know in America, where you know there's so much cultural Christianity um, or religion, just in general, he's like it's it's virtually impossible to be a black atheist because of how much these identities are are conflated and equated in many ways. So. It makes me think, in terms of who the showrunner is, in terms of that writing room, that part of the reason they can they can engage these sensitively is because it really is a part of um, just the resources of cultural life that they would use to make sense of, of this kind of narrative. I I then think surely somebody, you know, I, I think Tony is reading this pretty well in terms of <laughs> how the passage is being used um, specifically, but it's you know pretty clearly. And pretty obviously, they're they're wanting us to see this uh, religious symbolism a certain way. The question for me then is: is that a a representation of a cultural dynamic, or or is it an, an honest attempt to engage also in some theological uh, interrogation of those? Um, and that I don't know. I, I I think we'd have to talk to the actual people on the ground. Yeah.
1: Okay, well, that's, that was some scintillating conversation we had there with Cutter about episodes 7 and 8 of Luke Cage. Wouldn't yeah. you agree,
2: Ryan? Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like we're editing this together. Yeah, I, I'm glad that we had Cutter on, and, and as you could probably sense, there's a whole lot more to talk about there, especially with his new book coming out, and we've decided to create a whole episode devoted just to that. So
1: Cutter Calloway doesn't just have a cool name.
2: No, he's also got some insight and a new book.
1: So, yeah, you know, everybody, uh, definitely tune into that very special episode that we're going to have. We'll post um, that in a couple days. With with Cutter talking about his book. It really, I I was really pleased with how that conversation went. So tune into that and then catch us next week when we'll be talking about Luke Cage episodes 9 and 10. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: Take my advice,
1: brother. You should be out there helping people, like them other fellas downtown. Reaper used to say the same thing. Yeah, well, she was right.
2: Oh, fuck you, can't even sing. Yeah, no, just saying something a person. Oh, baby, I like.
0: and now you Harlem's (laughs) hero I'm just getting started